goes on its way, and goodbye! Over everything, onto the streets of Boston. And the manager reacting to it. That ball is hit deep. J.D. Drew has gotten a hold of one. On its way and out of here! Into the bleachers. It's his second home run. That low! And this game is going to be tied up! That one's headed for New Hampshire! What a shot! And they're playing home run derby early this year at Fenway Park. Three booming home runs in a row. That ball is hit. And that one is on its way. Number four in a row. And the Red Sox have gone ahead on four swings of the bat here in the third. Here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez down. The fastball swung on at the deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back and it is. Get out the right bread and the mustard this time, Grandma. It is a grand salami. And the Mariners lead it 10-6. I don't believe it. My, oh, my. From high atop the Robinson Deering Studio Complex, Straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? It's your boy, half man, half podcast machine. Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Back in the Captain Kirk chair for our little weekly baseball show we do here. It's called Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. I want to welcome everyone in, and uh, thank you for the kind words on last week's show, The Gas House Gang. I really, really appreciate that. And welcome in for today's show. Please remember to follow, subscribe, comment, like, rate me as you see fit. I ain't skirt. And as I promised the audience, uh, I will never go on strike. I'm never going to go on strike and leave you baseball jonesing uh, in limbo, if you want to call it. Uh, That ain't me. That ain't my style, baby. I'm going to be here every Tuesday giving you fire. Secondly, I'm never going to charge you here. No Patreon. No crowdsourcing. I don't need you to send me a dollar every, every month. Look, I love and respect all of my listeners. So, uh... Any interactions that you give me, such as comments, uh, rates, and all that other stuff, it helps me, it helps my family, it helps the show, and uh, I'd rather just keep the content free if it's good with you guys. Um, like I said, welcome in to Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories, but look, we don't just collect just stories. Uh, we don't just collect just ballplayers. Uh, we collect mascots. We collect moments, milestones. We also are going to start a collection of stadiums. I'm going to deal with the uh, the current 30 state. Well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want to lie to the audience. Uh, we're going to do 28 of the stadiums because, I, you know, look, Oakland, Alameda uh, County Stadium and the Tropicana down in Tampa Bay, I refuse to do the research on those shows. Get a new stadium, and we'll talk about your new stadium. So I'm going to be collecting 28 of the 30 Major League Baseball stadiums that we have in the league right now. I'm going to start with the oldest and work our way up to the more modern cribs of today. And uh, I'm also going to collect some of the older stadiums from yesteryear, Abbott's Field, Polo Ground, uh, Sportsman Park, all these great stadiums from yesteryear. So we don't just uh, collect necessarily ballplayers and their stories. We collect baseball stories. And uh, I am so glad to do today's show. Today's show is going to be on Fenway Park. Uh I don't know how many of you have ever been to Fenway who are not Red Sox fans. It, it is a very interesting park. It's the oldest living, breathing baseball monument in the world. 
It's a baseball cathedral where all of New England basically comes to cheer their beloved Red Sox. And they've been doing this for over a century, uh, 110 years to be exact. Uh, this little stadium setup, it's nestled comfortably in the fence. Uh, the fence is a little neighborhood that is slightly outside of uh, downtown Boston. And Fenway Park has hosted nearly 9,000 Major League Baseball games, which is by far more than any other ballpark on the planet. Um, it has also served as the home field for other uh, pro sports teams from 1963 to 1968. It was home of the AFL Boston Patriots, which is now the NFL New England Patriots. And even more before that, Fenway tenants included uh, the Boston Redskins and the Boston Yankees. Both of those were pro football teams, as well as the Boston Beacons, which was a pro soccer team, and that was in the 1910s. Uh, Fenway Park has the most consecutive Major League Baseball sellouts in history. From May 15, 2003 to April 8, 2013, a streak of 794 regular season games, and if you include the uh, postseason contest, it comes out to 820 consecutive sellouts. The Huntington Avenue grounds was the original home of Boston's American League team. That team was originally known as the Americans, and that team, most of you know, uh, they would beat the Pirates in the first World Series in 1901. Um, they would go through many change, name changes, the Americans, the Bees, and they would finally settle down, uh, settle in on the Red Sox in 1908. The Huntington Avenue grounds was only used for about 11 years. It was literally on the other side of the railroad tracks from the NL Boston Braves Stadium and they played, their stadium was called the South End Grounds. And literally Fenway right now is a little less than a mile from where uh, the South End Grounds and the Huntington Avenue Grounds once stood. In fact, uh, it is now part of Northeast University, Nickerson Field. But there is a statue of Cy Young where the pitcher's mound would have been for the Huntington Avenue Grounds. Cy Young, of course, pitched for many years for Boston. Now, the Huntington Avenue grounds, this was a 14,000-seat stadium. It was primarily made out of wood. And due to its smaller crowd capacity and high risk of fire, as well as the, uh, I guess we could say, the evolution of steel and concrete stadiums, Red Sox owner John Taylor decide to build a stadium in the fence. So, construction begins in 1911. Uh, this led to an increase in the team value, which led to the Taylors to sell the team to Jim McAleer and Robert McCroy. Now, there has been some debate on the origin of the name Fenway. And some say it's because of this intimate relationship between the stadium and the Fens neighborhood. And that certainly makes sense. And there are some that say, hey, the Taylors were uh, owners of Fenway Realty Company. And, you know, some believe that he saw this as like kind of like a corporate branding naming rights back in 1911. You know, he owns Fenway Realty Company and he kind of ties it into the stadium here where the Red Sox play, and it is great free advertising. Uh, but there is a debate on that, on the origin of the name Fenway Park. Fenway was built in six months at a cost of $650,000, which today is equivalent, let me break out my calendar here, uh, $19.065 million in 2022. There doesn't appear to be any formal groundbreaking ceremony in my research, but I did see a newspaper clip of workers clearing land in September of 1911. Groundskeeper Jerome Kelly, 
He would later transfer the sod from the Huntington grounds to Fenway. And there is this thought that John Taylor and his father, they basically built up the Fens neighborhood to increase property value of the vast properties they already owned there. Uh, there certainly was a personal benefit for the Taylor's ambitions here, and it's not beyond the realm. When you consider the Taylor's sold all their shares and dove headfirst into real estate, soon thereafter, uh, construction of Fenway began. And obviously, seven months, uh, that stadium was built expeditiously. She was designed by Osborne Engineering of Cleveland. That's the same firm that would go on to construct Yankee Stadium and more recently, Progressive Field to Jake for the uh, Indians slash Guardians in 1994. The principal architect, his name was James McLaughlin. And it was among the first of the jewel box era in stadiums. And that very year, two other jewel box stadiums began construction. Along with Fenway, the Tigers were building Navin Field, which would become Briggs Field, which would become Tiger Stadium. And the Reds were putting Cros Crosley Field together. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, what the hell is a jewel box stadium? A jewel box is a term used to signify a group of stadiums built primarily between 1909 and 1915. And this is after the wooden stadium era and before the multi-purpose stadium era. And these jewel box cribs, uh, they were usually built inside of city blocks and neighborhoods, and they usually featured uh, like a two-tiered grandstand design with steel or concrete load-bearing structure supports. The retro ballparks that came to life after Oriole Park at Camden Yards in the early 90s were pretty much fitted to capture the intimacy of these jewel box parks. There are now only two jewel box stadiums left in Major League Baseball, Fenway Park and Wrigley Field. And I want to tell you, like, my first taste I had of Fenway, uh, I fell in love with the outside as much as the inside. As you walk around her, you sometimes get lost and you forget that there's actually a stadium on the other side of these buildings. It's really easy to lose yourself in the neighborhood and all that it has to offer in shops, bars, eateries. And... You really, sometimes, like, you'll think, oh, this looks like a garage or a warehouse here. And then you'll, like, turn up Lansdowne Street, and you'll see these two huge green light stanches. And you're just like, oh, yeah, there's actually a stadium on the other side of this wall. And it's really, really cool the way Fenway stands right now in 2022. Like I said, uh, the construction was quick, seven months. On April 9th, 1912, Fenway Pope Park hosted its first baseball game ever. It was an exhibition game between the Red Sox and Harvard University, and the Sox would win that game 2 to nothing. Eleven days later, on April 20th, 1912, the Red Sox played their first game at Fenway Park versus the New York Highlanders, who would go on to become the New York Yankees. The Sox would win that day, 7-6. And the funny thing is, is you got this new stadium, Sox beat New York, but it's not front-page news because America is kind of still in this malaise after hearing about the Titanic sinking five days earlier on April 15, 1912. That's how old this freaking stadium is. Five days after the sinking of the Titanic, folks. And look, the Red Sox would go on to win 105 games that year. They would win the World Series four games to three with a tie. That's right. You heard me right. Four games to three with a tie. Now, 
I was I was a little caught off guard when I saw that because I had never really realized that there were World Series games that actually ended in ties. But folks, I'm gonna I'm here to tell you to give you the good shit. There's been three World Series that ended in a tie. 1907, game one. 1912, game two, and 1922, game two. And I noticed last week when I was doing the Gas House Gang, and again, I want to thank everybody for the kind, sweet words that you gave me on uh, the Gas House Gang. I really appreciate it. But when I was doing it, I, I was going through the Cardinals' years, and I was noticing, hey, they had two ties that year. They had a tie this year. What's up with that? Well, I, I had to think about it for a second. They don't have lights. So... You know, the game's getting late. It's a 2-2 tie in the 12th, 13th, whatever it is. And it's dark. You can't see the ball. Game's a tie. And apparently, it happened. I'm not going to say it happened often, but it did happen before lights came into baseball. And it happened here three times in World Series history that a game ended in a tie. But like I said, the Red Sox went on to win 105 games that year. They won the World Series four games to three with a tie. And during the season, while the Sox were on the road, Fenway also hosted amateur baseball games, and they also hosted the National High School Football Championship in 1912. The construction of the left field and right field bleachers were built in time for the World Series, as well as, uh, get this, there used to be a six-foot embankment incline in front of the left field wall. Now, it wasn't the monster yet, but it was a it was a high structured wall. And there was actually a hill that used to go up this embankment and then it plateaued along the top to the wall. And it was called Duffy's Cliff. It was named after Duffy Lewis, a Red Sox left fielder who apparently became quite adept at handling the cliff. And from what it sounds like, he handled the cliff kind of the same way Yaz used to handle the monster. So, uh, yeah, Duffy's Cliff. And look, if you're sitting around, you can push pause right now. Go to Google. Check it out. It's called Duffy's Cliff Fenway Park. And you'll see there's a, <laughs> there is a hill in the outfield and left field, and it goes eh, to about center field. And the funny thing is, is... Uh, I'm not really one of these guys that's into, like, these novelty stadiums, you know, real gimmicky. Uh, but I used to, like, even that stadium, uh, the stadium formerly known as Enron in Houston, they used to have the Tiles Hill in, in center field. And I know a lot of Astros fans did not like it. I always liked the embankments in the outfields, and I'm going to tell you why, because it reminds me of when I was a kid, the field that I played on actually had an incline. It was a big incline. It was like 20 feet. And uh, so whenever I see stadiums that have that, it always takes me back to my childhood. But yeah, it's really crazy looking. You got to see it. Go to Google and put in Duffy's Cliff Fenway Park. And you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Her original dimensions were 314 feet to right, 488 feet to center, and 321 feet to left. And like I said, uh, left field sat atop of Duffy's Cliff. And the stadium had a seating capacity of 27,000. In 1913, the architect, James McLaughlin, he would uh, open the Fenway Garage behind the park's, the park's right field and center field bleachers. And this would help to accommodate even more of the crowds that were coming in. In fact, back in those days... Uh, fans used to actually stand on the outfield grass of Fenway in the beginning. And if the ball went into the, the fans, it was if it rolled into the fans, it was just a ground rule double. But you can see how the stadium is evolving now. Um, like I said, he buys these garages and he turns them into right field and center field bleachers. The Red Sox and their crosstown NL team, the Boston Braves, they shared Fenway in 1914 as construction on Braysfield went underway. In fact, uh, that team was dubbed the Miracle Braves, 
And they would actually go on to clinch a World Series championship that year, and they would do it on hollowed Red Sox ground that year when they would beat the Philadelphia A's. They actually beat them in the clinching game in Fenway Park over the Philadelphia A's in 1914. So uh, while the Braves stadium is under construction, the Braves are uh, sharing Fenway, and they wind up winning the World Series in Fenway. In 1915, the Red Sox and the Braves, they continue to share Fenway. And they continue to do that until the Braves moved into their crib, and that was around in August. Now, ironically, the Red Sox would go onto the World Series, and they would use Braves Field because now Braves Field had a bigger seating capacity. So after watching the 1914 Braves celebrate their win over the A's in Fenway Park, it was now the Braves' turn to watch the Sox beat the Phillies for their third World Series title. And the Red Sox would actually win another world title in 1916. And again, they played the regular season games in Fenway, but they would later play the World Series games at Braves Field. And they would go on to beat the Brooklyn Robins four games to one. So, after four world championships in seven years, the Red Sox they're baseball royalty, baby. A baseball empire built to last the ages. Or maybe not. Yeah, probably probably not. Because that, you know, playwright Harry Frazee buys the socks. And he pretty said, uh, yeah, hold my beer. And by now, most of you seem heads now. The curse of the Bambino, this cockamamie curse with the Red Sox. They couldn't win a championship because they sold Babe Ruth. I never bought into that horse shit. I mean, I point more to Boston being the last MLB team to sign a black player as a bigger problem in uh, decades to come than selling Babe Ruth. And for sure, the Red Sox are about to enter a dark age in their team's chapter. They would finish in last or next to last for the next 15 seasons. But what most people don't realize is that Frizzy sold Babe Ruth and 15 other guys. 12 guys went to the Yankees and the other four went to the Cardinals. Now, while losing Babe Ruth, it certainly changed the fortune of the Yankees. It wasn't the only move that hurt the Red Sox. I mean, look, I highly doubt that any of you fans listening to this, my voice right now, I highly would doubt that your team could lose 16 pieces and still compete in the upcoming season. I'm going to say it ain't happening. And for Z, he sold off these parts for a grand total of $125,000, which is about $1.882 million in today's economy. And that would go into finance his Broadway play, No, No, Nanette. And someone, I mean, they should have told him, no, 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 you didn't just sell Babe Ruth for this horseshit play. <laughs> I mean, really, never heard of it. By 1923, Frizzy is gone. I guess he went off to write some more mediocre shit. And the Red Sox, they just continue this downward spiral. And most of the times, it's in front of an empty Fenway Park. And the history of Fenway Park is marred by fire. The park has been the site of many minor fires since its opening in 1912. In 1926, a fire started in the third base bleachers and spread along the wooden fence atop Duffy's Cliff on Lansdowne Street. The bleachers were destroyed and they sat empty for three months of the season. Tough times continued for the Sox and their dilapidating ballpark and the team and the stadium <laughs> remained in ill repair, both team and stadium. So, enter Thomas Yawkey, uh, who brought the team in 1933. Uh, 
he made his money the hard way. Uh, he inherited it. And then he uh, spent all that inheritance, $30 million, as a birthday gift to himself. I'm sorry, $1.2 million, which is around $21.44 million in today's economy. The Sox are now worth $3.46 billion. So, yeah, Thomas Yonke, he gets a uh, big inheritance from his family. He winds up buying the Yankees for himself on his birthday. And as Yonke takes over, a plan to build what is now the Green Monster in left field, it was put on hold after another fire broke out in Fenway, this time in 1934. This time, the fire, it not only burned along Lansdowne Street, but it actually spread throughout the Fens neighborhood. And Yonke doesn't miss a beat. He uses that blaze as a positive, and he begins to invest in the park. The first thing he does is he builds the bleacher section under the highlight screen, stretching from right field to the inf infamous Fenway Triangle and left center field. Before Mr. Yonke came along, that seating area was not really a part of Fenway Park. If you were sitting in that proximity, you could see the game, but technically you weren't at the ballpark, which means no restroom, and even more important to the Red Sox, it means no revenue from concession stands. So, Mr. Yawkey simply bought the building, had it built to its current configuration that you see today. The second thing he does is he builds the second course of Fenway. And you can see it today. Nothing's been touched. The grandstand section, uh, you can still see those same Red Sox blue oak chairs from 1934. And I'm going to tell you, uh, they're not very wide. And honestly, they might be, they might be the most uncomfortable chair you will ever sit in in your life. By 1930, the long ball has taken over Major League Baseball. By the time Yawkey takes over, home runs are leaving Fenway at an amazing rate. And they're ending up in apartment windows across the street. So... As Mr. Yawkey is surveying Duffy's Cliff, trying to figure out how to avoid all these uh, window repair bills that he's being charged with, he happens to notice a family sitting across the hill on the other side of Lansdowne Street, and they're watching the game. So, in the biggest overreaction in baseball history, he rips up Duffy's Cliff, and they begin construction on the Big Green Monster. A 37-foot, 2-inch high wall with a, at that time, 30-foot screen on top of the monster to catch balls headed to Lansdowne Street windows. The monster, it's 231 feet long from left to center. And the nets would come down uh, as seats were built atop the monster in 2003. And they are not only some of the best views of Fenway Park, but uh, there's some of the best views of Boston, if you ever get a chance to take a tour and go up there. Now, the monster was not originally, originally green. Uh, it was covered in advertising, but that would change in 1947 when Jean Yawkey, Tom's wife, she would put her indelible fingerprint on Fenway Park by personally selecting the shade of green that adorns Fenway to this day. And uh, look, all you uh, little Red Sox freaks out there, you, you can find that shade of green for about $55 a gallon from the Benjamin Moore Fenway collection. Uh, and, you know, all you guys working on your man caves. The Fenway collection consists of Green Monster 12, Boston Blue 09, Boston Red Sox 42, uh, baseline white 08, foul pole 27, and yeah, that's the uh, Benjamin Moore Fenway collection. Give those dudes a free plug there. And so, look, when you, you look, just tell them things sent you. And there's a man-operated scoreboard on that wall. 
as well as a hand-operated ALE standings board. Uh, every game, a two-man team sits in the, in the wall and watches through these little slits to get all the game info they need. They're not only responsible for the score of the game, but they also give you like the count, the outs, and even more impressively, uh, the out-of-town out of scoreboard. And that's just, I'm thinking about, like, that must have been really interesting when you're trying to do out-of-town scoreboards and before the time of, you know, you, you go to your phone and get a score off your phone. Off your phone. Uh, I can only imagine how tough that was before the internet to get out-of-town scoreboards. And they stay on top of all of it. And look, I can actually hear the wheels grinding inside of you seam heads right now. You're thinking, how do I get this job? Well, there certainly is a romantic element about the job. But there are some things that you should know about before submitting your resume. Uh, first of all, there's no heat. There's no AC. So, in the summer times... It's 20 degrees hotter than it is outside, and in uh, October's, it's 20 degrees colder than it is outside. There's no running water. There's no bathroom. You see what I'm saying here? The only way out, once you're in, is the door by the WB Mason sign on the Green Monster. So, basically, there's no leaving once the game begins. Now, if you ever get a chance to take a tour and get inside the monster, you will notice the inside has autographs, signatures everywhere on almost every inch of the wall in there. Every person who's ever played in there, every person who's ever walked through there on tours, uh, from the biggest superstar to the lowly janitor to the gawking tours. And I'm proud to say that my name is actually on that wall. Uh, it was really hard to find my own spot, so I'm going to tell you what I did, and don't tell anyone, but I scratched out Jose Offerman's name, and I put mine up for posterity. Ah, wah, 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 wah. Prior to the start of the 1946 season, their right field wall was moved in 20 feet to create a bullpen between the stands and the outfield wall. The local press would nickname the bullpen Williamsburg, as it was built not only for the pitchers, but primarily to benefit Ted Williams and his left-hand pull power. The center field wall is 17 feet tall. The wall in front of the bully is 5 feet high. And the right field wall, it varies from 3 feet high to 5 feet high. And these quirky field dimensions have always led to the thought that no lead is safe in Fenway Park. If you look beyond the bully, you may see a sea of Fenway green seats. 37 rows behind that bullpen, 502 feet from the home plate. You will see one seat painted red. And this is in commemoration of Ted Williams' home run blast in 1946. The longest hit to right field Fenway to this day. 502 feet. The, fa uh, the facade is still all original. It had to be repointed. And the bricks need periodic cleaning. There were errors in the uh, mortar that caused some of the brick to crumble in some places, particularly on Van Ness Street, where it had expanded and crushed the brick. Much of the original structure still stands. Not many of the steel trusses are still there. Uh, they were cut down in the 60s and again in the 90s. But the arches have been opened behind Section 22 through 26, uh, behind the grandstand, and it gives Red Sox fans a favorable glimpse of Lansdowne Street. And then there is the pesky pole. And it is as much part of the Fenway lingo as the monster or the triangle. The right field pole is named after Johnny Pesky, former Red Sox fan favorite, who had over a 1,000 at-bats for Boston, hit six home runs, and three of them by wrapping them around the before-mentioned foul pole, which is anywhere from 295 to 302 feet from home plate. It depends on who you ask. 
And I don't know why we can't get an exact number on that poll there. The poll was uh, given the nickname by Pesky's teammate, left-handed pitcher Mel Parnell. And really, it has become another Fenway must-visit shrine. It also has hundreds, if not thousands, of signatures and autographs on it from fans and players alike. Another piece of Fenway's quirky nature is the ladder hanging on the monster. The ladder was there so that Red Sox employees could basically climb the ladder to retrieve the baseballs that the monster would digest in the 30-foot net that used to adorn the top of the wall that would be there to prevent baseballs from going out on Lansdowne. Uh, when the monster seats were added in 2003, there was some thought of removing said ladder, but ownership decided to keep the ladder and Fenway's quirkiness intact. The ladder is in play, and it has seen some crazy caroms through the year. Uh, that park, period, because of its nature, you will see some of the crazy caroms in that stadium, especially uh, the ladder, and then also down the third base line, if the ball goes past third base fair and then uh, slices into foul grounds and it's going hard enough, it will bang into that wall, that little wall that juts up along the third base line that shoots out towards the foul line, and it causes crazy, crazy caroms. Sometimes it's like watching a pinball game when balls are hit inside that stadium. It's crazy. Uh, by the way, if you're interested in sitting high atop those monster seats, I saw two seats versus the lowly Orioles on April 4th. I mean, if there's a baseball season, they're going for $330 a pop. So, yeah, yeah, go ahead and get those. They're available, and uh, have fun with that. On June 13th, 1947, the Red Sox defeated the White Sox 5-3 in the first night game at Fenway Park, June 13th, 1947. And for almost three decades, there were very few changes to the old girl. In the 75 off season, a new $1.5 million uh, scoreboard was erected in Centerfield bleachers. The press box was enlarged and enclosed in glass and air conditioning. There was a center field. Uh, there was a flagpole in center field that was in play. They did away with that. And that same year, the monster used to be covered in tin. Well, they, they, they switched it in 75. And uh, I think, actually, it was because Freddie Lynn got injured banging into that wall that they decided to replace it with, like, a hard plastic surface. In the early 80s, they added 44 luxury, luxury boxes down the first and third base line. In 1988, the scoreboard... That was constructed in 1975. Well, that would be replaced with a new color scoreboard and a video board. And also, the, the press box was replaced with luxury boxes. And it was known as the 600 Club. And the new press area was rebuilt above the 600 Club. And that 600 Club, of course, is named after Ted Williams. In the mid to late 1990s, a majority of the team had... Uh, built or were in the process of building new cribs for their respective clubs. And during this time, Fenway was becoming, like, outdated, if not obsolete. And it would need, like, a massive structural renovation to remain home of the Red Sox. There were actually numerous conversations of the decision to either renovate Fenway or start anew. And actually, through my research, I learned there has been talks of replacing Fenway with something more modern, with more modern um, since like the 50s and the 60s. Their clubhouse is smaller than most high school facilities. In fact, I saw a 1966 edition of the Boston Globe calling for Fenway to be, to be replaced with a dome stadium. This is in 66. In May of 1999, the Red Sox management announced 
that they would be replacing Fenway across the street. They claimed the ballpark was not structurally sound. It needed a larger capacity, more comfortable luxury boxes to compete with the Yankees. And the real hurdle for the Red Sox was two things. Number one, the ability to raise capital to finance a land acquisition and the construction price tag that was sitting at about $700 million. And two, the Red Sox nation themselves as a grassroots movement, they formed Safe Family Park and their, their message was gaining momentum. In 2002, John Henry purchases the Red Sox from the Yonke Family Trust for $695 million. And one of the first things John Henry did as an owner, he forms a commission and it's focused on Fenway's infrastructure. And they would be pleased to learn that Fenway was indeed still viably sound. Still, though, from 2002 and 2022, the club has built around, it's put around $300 million into renovating and slightly expanding the playing field, and it remains New England's most visited tourist attraction. In 2010 all season, they switched the electronic scoreboard in center field again to a new 38-foot by 100-foot high-def board. Her current dimensions are... 310 feet in left field, 302 feet in right field, left center is 379 feet, and it's 420 in the triangle. Nah, what, 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 what? 420 in the triangle. Get out of here. In the post-Yawkey era, there have been massive renovations besides the monster seats. They've added two rows of seats Encroaching the first and third base lines, they've added a right field deck and other expansions of concourses, which made the smallest foul ground area in Major League uh, Baseball even smaller and more intimate. Their 35,096-seat stadium holds the smallest capacity of fans in the majors. They are the only stadium left that have steel support poles in front of their dugout beds. September 22, 1935, 47,627 fans watched the Red Sox play the Yankees. It was the largest Fenway crowd ever, and because of strict fire, co strict fire codes now, that number will never be surpassed. Before fire codes, like I said, you know, the, the Sox would just pack them in. They, you know, they just had fans standing on the field. You know, they, they used to pack them in any way they could. <laughs> Fenway has hosted 11 World Series, 1912, 14, 18, 46, 67, 75, 86, 2004, 2007, 13, and 19. And the only time Bostonians have witnessed a World Series clinch at Fenway was 1912, 1918, and 2013 for, for the Red Sox. The Braves did clinch, like I told you earlier, in Fenway in 1914. So basically, uh, the Red Sox fans have pretty much seen it once because no one's alive from 1918 that went to that, you know, that World Series. So... Uh, this generation, for all the World Series that they've been to and the success they had, especially in the 2000s, they've only seen one clinch at Fenway Park. Uh, and that one in 13, I believe, was the Koji Orohara strikeout of Matt Carpenter, if I'm not mistaken. I'm usually pretty good at remembering the last out of World Series. There have been two single games uh, playoffs played in Fenway Park. Both games were won by the Visitors. The 1948 Indians and the Bucky flipping Dent game of uh, 1978. Fenway has hosted three All-Star Midsummer Classics, 1946, 1961, and 1999, which was really my favorite All-Star game ever. 
You had the uh, all-century team. Ted Williams comes out. Everybody's crying like a bunch of babies. The home run derby was amazing. Off the wall. I mean, it was like it was like dark time in Fenway, which I think was one of the first nighttime home run derbies, if you can imagine that. And it was the dark, black, Boston ink sky. And baseballs were just, I mean, Sammy Sosa, McGuire, they were putting on a show that year. And then the actual game was fun, too, because Pedro, the hometown guy, is just striking out everybody. Nobody can handle that kid. Stop it. He's filthy. It's amazing. Oh, my God. Those were the days. Those were the days. Fenway has a capacity of 37,493 fans for night games and 37,065 fans for day games. And the reason for that is uh, they cover center field in a black tarp for the day game, so uh, you, you get a better batter's eye out of the deal. Besides baseball, Fenway has hosted football, NHL hockey, Barnum and Bailey, president's speeches, uh, Teddy and Franklin Roosevelt, Negro Leagues games, Cops versus firemen games, uh, Gaelic football, whatever that is. Uh, soccer was first played there in 1925, and more recently in 2019, when John Henry's soccer team, Liverpool, beat Tottenham 2 to nothing. And before we get out of here, I've heard people portray Fenway less than favorable through the years. They've complained about uncomfortable small seats, obstructed and odd sight lines. But here's the thing. The majority of those people, they're visiting fans. They're probably haters, rooters for the other team. They're coming from cities where they probably have all the modern amenities in their new crib. But Fenway is able to stay relevant and viable to this day because it has evolved since 1912, but it still holds on to what's important. And here's what I'm trying to say. Everything you see inside and outside of Fenway, anything that your eye touches, it matters. Very few things have been touched or altered inside Fenway. So while visitors of rival teams may, may not appreciate it, uh, you can go to these true New Englanders who are rocking these big B lids, and they wouldn't have it any other way. You better never ever suggest to them that they get rid of that stadium. It is passed down through the generation. And he or she, right now, they're going to pass it down to their offspring, and their offspring is going to pass it down to their offspring. Fenway has become like this rite of passage for all of New England. So, when you see David Ortiz step into that left-hander's batter's box, you know that this is hollowed baseball ground. That's the same box Babe Ruth used. That's the same box Ted Williams used. Same box as Yaz, Mo Vaughn. And I'm going to be honest with you. I used to get these same feelings when I would walk into old Yankee Stadium. You just get caught up in the moment. And honestly, you begin to see Ghost as the oldest and most intimate, living, breathing baseball stadium on the planet. Fenway Park is a true baseball cathedral. It's even older than the Baseball Hall of Fame. And pushing forward in its second century... The old bird, I mean, she's poised to live for decades and generations to come. And of all the great moments of that park, and there have literally been hundreds, thousands, from the babe doing his thing to Ted Williams dropping 500-foot dong facials, I would be remiss if I did a Fenway Park show without this. Delivery to Fisk. He swings. Long drive. Left field. If it stays there, it's gone. Home run. The Red Sox win. And the series is tied.
games apiece. Carl Smith in a one nothing catch. They're jamming out on the field. His teammates are waiting for him. The ball hit the foul ball. And the Red Sox have sent the World Series into Game 7 with a dramatic 7-6 victory. And as many as you know, that is uh, Carlton Fisk. 1975, Game 6 home run to force Game 7 versus the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati Reds. Uh, one of the greatest baseball games ever. I think many would have considered that one of the greatest World Series until the Minnesota Twins and the Braves came around. And I believe, what was that, 91? I can't remember what it was. Sometime in the 90, that Braves-Twins game uh, series was Unbelievable. I don't know why it's escaping me from the top of my head right now. But the thing that was so great about the Carlton Fisk home run is it literally was a marriage between baseball and television. And it would literally change the landscape between pro sports and TV co coverage. That was the first time in sports history that uh, anyone had ever taken a reaction side. It was the first time that anyone had just kept the film and the camera focused on the athlete after performing, you know, I mean, just a blast, you know, home run off the, off the uh, foul pole there, forces game seven. Now they wouldn't go on to lose game seven, unfortunately. So, I think this is where I'm gonna wrap it up. Fenway Park, it has one hour guided tours if you're interested. It's wheelchair accessible, and you can book or uh, private or small groups. So, yeah, you got that going for you. And you can learn even more about this historical baseball stadium that has stood the test of time. There's all kinds of books out there. There's all kinds of stuff on YouTube. I recommend you go out there and uh, check it out. Please remember, Backwards K Pod is available on all podcast platforms. Apple, iHeart, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, it's everywhere. Or you can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to dig into my uh, archives playlist. Uh, you can email the show, backwardsgamepod at gmail.com. And thank you again for hanging out with me. I hope to see you again next week when I talk about the death of the Montreal Expos. But look, that's another story for another pod. Parents, if you see your kid and he's sitting on the couch and they're looking bored, by all means, take him outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and good night.